In the small border town of Brackettville, Texas, just east of Del Rio, there is a community of black Seminoles with a deep history and culture of resilience and bravery in both Mexico and the United States. Descended from Native Americans and escaped African slaves, the black Seminoles known as Muscogos in Mexico also have a sister city in Coahuila, Mexico, called El Nacimiento de los Negros Muscogos, granted to the Seminoles by the Mexican government for protecting its border with the United States. In Brackettville, Wendy Goodlow helps run the Museum of the Seminole Indian Scout Cemetery Association and the George Washington Carver's School and Cultural Center. Each year, Goodlow and other black Seminoles in Brackettville celebrate their history and traditions during Juneteenth and the weekend-long Seminole Days in September, which draws descendants from all over the world. Goodlow and I spoke in early June shortly before their Juneteenth celebration about the black Seminoles' fascinating and complex history on the U.S.-Mexico border. Thank you, Wendy, so much for coming on the Border Chronicle podcast. Um, Wendy and I met in the town of Brackettville in Kinney County a few months ago, and she has such a deep and engaging knowledge of the region and Black Seminole history that I, I think I asked her like a hundred questions or more when we met. <laughs> I mean, we talked for like a couple of hours and you were incredibly patient uh, with your time and my questions. And so ever since then, I've been dying to have you on the podcast for an interview. So thank you again for, for doing this. I really appreciate it. Oh, no problem. First off, I, I wanted you to just describe your home in Brackettville in Kinney County for, for folks who don't know where that is. Uh, and, and also how this rural border county became such an important place for the Black Seminoles. Okay. Well, um, you know, Brackettville is, you know, for everybody that lives here is, you know, it's more than home. You know, I'm sure you know that in most small towns, we're so insular and sometimes it feels like we're cut off from the world because it's such a tiny community. So everybody knows everybody. That's, I think, the most important thing to know is that we all know each other. Um, our population here is only 17, just over 1,700 people. So it's very small. But we live in between Del Rio, which is to our west or further to the west. You know, it's just two miles away from the Mexican border. And then to our east is Uvalde. So Bracket sits literally in the middle. Um, Del Rio is 32 miles away. Uvalde is 42 miles away. So, you know, if we need anything, we have to go to one of these cities to go shopping, to go to doctor's appointments, hospitals, things like that. So, um, you know, Bracket is just very small in that way. The way that the Black Seminoles ended up here in Bracket, which was a question that I started asking when I was a little girl, because um, we're a very small population of people, but I think the population here is majority Mexican. And, um, than um, white people and then black people make up less than one percent of the population so you know my question always was why are we here you know how did we get here and why are we here there are so few of us here 
So the Black Seminoles are a group that started out originally as what would be termed, later termed Maroons, or people who ran away from being enslaved. And this particular group of escaped Africans who had left slavery met up with the group that would come to be known as the Seminoles. So that started in um, what was considered the low country region of the United States, which is modern day North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. So along this area are a group of people known as, uh, that would become known as the Gullahs or Gullah Geechees. They were originally um, Africans from Central and Western Africa who were stolen into slavery and then forced to work in this area. And then they created a culture unto their own that's absolutely beautiful and something that I would love to study more because they are our forebearers. So instead of going north in search of freedom, they knew that La Florida was under Spanish rule and actually the Spanish were sending out decrees for people to come and settle in this region. So as early as I think 1693 is the first documented um, enslaved African finding refuge in, in Florida, what would become known as Florida. So from around 1693 until around 1842, this was the home of the group that would become known as the Black Seminoles. Within that time, they would become, you know, learn to cohabitate with this group known as the Seminoles. And the Seminoles were Creeks who had broken off from the group because of many differences that they had, one of them being whether or not to enslave people. There was a sect of, of, of Creeks who had decided to become, um, take on more European practices, slavery being one of them. And there was a smaller subset of that group that didn't agree with that. So they just left the group and went into Florida. So this group became known as the Seminoles, which in Creek means runaway. So it's interesting that that name would also apply to the Black Seminoles who had also run away, um, you know, from their own form of, of enslavement. So the um, group would first cohabitate in the northern part of, Mex uh, of Florida. And because of the U.S.'s encroachment on that state, they would be pushed further and further south. Um, along the way, they would fight three significant wars. The most significant was the Second Seminole War. This is the war that sort of displayed the military tactics of the Black Seminoles. There are many letters that were written by generals saying, no, this is not an Indian war, this is a Negro war because of how fiercely the Black Seminoles fought. And many historians say that the reason that they fought so hard was that they didn't fear death, they feared a return to enslavement. But after 1842, after the end, or what brought about the end of the Second Seminole War was that three Black Seminole leaders agreed to leave in return for freedom because that's what they thought they would have if they agreed to move to Oklahoma, which was Indian territory. Um, so they get there and unfortunately, the promises that they were made weren't able to be upheld. Um, so while um, a number of the Black Seminoles would stay in Oklahoma, and Oklahoma has its own story about how that community there has tried to, um, throughout the years from, starting really from 1866, when all Native American tribes, um, because in 1865, the Emancipation Proclamation spread throughout the U.S. You know, Texas um, found out it was no longer enslaved. It took the Indian, the civilized tribes a year after that. So the original Emancipation Proclamation was 1863. 
Texas, 1865, and then the Indian Nations, 1866. And with that, the Oklahoma um, Black Seminoles were a part of the tribe, but it's been a saga of its own. And that's an, a story that really I'm still learning and should be told by somebody from Oklahoma. But back in 1842, when the Black Seminoles got there, it wasn't a welcoming place. They were subject to being taken into slavery. So a smaller group of them decided that they couldn't stay. And by this time, John Horse and Wildcat, who were two, and really the story doesn't happen without them because they were young, tenacious, intelligent, ambitious. You know, if they hadn't tried to figure out a way to get their people out of, you know, what was happening, the story wouldn't have happened. So they went and found that Mexico was looking for scouts to um, protect their border. And they took a group down. It took them the whole year of 1849 to travel 700 miles. Um, they presented themselves to the Mexican government. And for the next 20 years from 1850 to 1870, they patrolled the Mexican border, keeping it safe from encroaching, you know, Westerners and, um, you know, what they deem hostile Native Americans. Mexico is actually the only government that honored their promise of work or land in exchange for work. So there is still a town which um, has become extremely popular within the last couple of years called um, El Nacimiento de los Negros Mascobos. And this is the actual land that Mexico gave and it's still a town today. They're celebrating, I believe, 170 years of existence. Um, excuse me, um, in July, they wanna have a big celebration to commemorate this, this important date. Um, but the Black Seminoles would become known as the Negros Mascogos in Mexico. And um, they would be there for 20 years working for the Mexican government. In 1870, the US military approached them and said, hey, what you've been doing for Mexico, can you do that for us? And so um, there were a number of men within the group who did take them up on the offer because they believed, hey, this is the United States. Why wouldn't they give us a great deal, give us land, give us food, give us money. So they um, crossed over to the U.S. on actually on July 4th, 1870 into Eagle Pass, which is 60 miles away from here at Fort Duncan. And then they were mustered into service um, a little more than a month later in August, um, August 16th of the same year. And then they would go on to serve from um, 1870 to 1914. By that time, they would be moved to Brackettville and would be known as some of the fiercest fighters in this area. It was their scouting and um, other endeavors that would help to end what were known as the Texas Indian Wars. Um, the men were known for their valor, uh, for their bravery. Uh, they never lost a man in battle. There was never anyone who was ever seriously wounded. And uh, by the end of their service, four men would be um, awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. And so um, those four men are actually buried in a cemetery here in Brackett, which is actually why sort of what our group um, is sort of built around is that cemetery. Um, we maintain it because it is a national landmark as well. And, um, you know, they were unceremoniously disbanded in 1914 after, um, you know, all those years of service with nothing really to show for it. So, you know, it is sort of a sad end to their saga. But, um, you know, what the organization that I work with works to do is to tell the story from our voice now. 
and you know to show that we you know as the descendants we're still here and we are very proud of this legacy that's been left to us yeah can you talk about the association that you work for and your role in it and and how many black seminoles now live in kinney county in brackettville Okay, so the, the organization um, I'm secretary of is called the Seminole Indian Scout Cemetery Association. Um, it was founded on May 6th, 1967 by a lady named Miss Charles Emily Wilson. And um, without her, so much would not have happened. And it's, you know, it's always so interesting because, um, you know, in every part of our history, there is always, you know, somebody that sort of takes the reins and makes sure that the work gets done. So. You know, it might have been John Horace back then, but in order to keep this story going and to bring it into the present, we needed a Miss Charles, someone who was very interested in making sure that this story didn't die. Um, and also Mr. Uh, Dub Warrior, who um, passed in 2020. He was sort of our last great um, storyteller and historian. Um, so the, the goal of the group has expanded. Originally, it was, it's, you know, the name is the Seminole Indian Scout Cemetery Association, but um, we've gone outside that purview, I, I would say almost from its inception, um, because the, um, the need to keep the history going has always been so important, especially to Ms. Charles, you know, again, so much, you know, as I said here, thank you, so much of what we do is because of her. So although we do, um, you know, center everything around the cemetery. All of our funds go to the upkeep of the cemetery. She's the one who's responsible for starting our Juneteenth celebrations and our Seminole Day celebrations, which happen annually. So we've been celebrating both of them. I believe she started both of them in the same year in 1979. So it's been about 40-ish years that we've been having this annually. And the reason for that was, um, her fear was that the youth would would one day not care about their history and so she you know has tried to put up as many safeguards to prevent that from happening and you know juneteenth this big celebration parades and foods and gathering and seminal days which is you know the same only it's a three-day instead of a one-day celebration um has has done that you know and and we continue to do that every year um and what was the other question? I think I forgot the last question you asked. Oh, how, how many Black Seminoles are there living in, in Brackettville now? Oh, gosh, I think I could count them all in my hand. I would be surprised. I don't know for sure the exact number, but I would say it's probably less than 30 people, if even that. You know, a lot of the families have moved away because, um, you know, they're looking for, you know, better economic situations. So, you know, a lot of people... Um, return home just, you know, during Juneteenth, Seminole days and the holidays, you know, leaving and then really missing home and missing those things that I took for granted. And, you know, my family just really missing, seeing them every day, um, I think played a big part in me trying to figure out why did we end up here? And then learning the story of how we ended up here and realizing wow, so many things had to happen. You know, that, I mean, it's a saga. Uh, you know, I, and even saga is such a small word um, for all the travel that happened in order for my family to end up in Brackettville, Texas. Yeah, no, it's, it's an epic journey. Yeah. And 
I mean, you also have this indigenous ancestry, and I think it's just so fascinating that, you know, the Creek tribes are deciding, are they going to have slaves or not have slaves? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is hundreds of years ago, and then this journey constantly running basically on the run, you know, looking for freedom, going to Florida, then going to Oklahoma, and then winding up in Texas. And it's wild that they arrive in Texas to work for Mexico to protect Mexico's border from the United States, Mm -hmm. which um, is pretty funny. And and they do a really good job for 20 years, right? Mm -hmm. Until until they Basically, the U.S. makes an offer, right? Yeah, which happened, of course, after Civil War, after, you know, slavery ended. So, you know, they were approached in 1870. So it was only five years after, you know, slaves were freed in in Texas, essentially. Something I forgot to say was that um, when the group originally went into Mexico, it was Wildcat, who was the leader of the Seminoles, and John Horse, who was the leader of the Black Seminoles. So even though the group's... um, basically you would say cohabitated together um they would never allow a black person to lead them the seminoles would never allow a black person to lead them so when wildcat passed away he passed away very young of either malaria or pneumonia um the seminole said well we have to go back you know we can't be led by you know the black folks here so they actually went back to oklahoma territory and left the black seminoles in Mexico. And so there was a group of um, Black Seminoles eventually who wanted to return to Indian Territory because they also were homesick. And that kind of was the impetus for the um, the army to step in because they um, couldn't afford to travel and got stopped sort of in the Brackettville area. I'm sorry, in the Eagle Pass area. The military approached them and said, you know, well, what are y'all? And they said, well, we're Black Seminoles, so we're going back to Indian Territory. And so they said, oh, well, no worries. The BIA will figure this out. So they wrote to the BIA, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and they said, "Um, oh, you said they're black? No, we can't help them. So at that point, the military said, well, hey, maybe we can make a deal here. You know, we've heard that y'all have been scouting, so let's offer you this and we can, you know, you can make some money, you know, enough to afford to be able to go on. So that was sort of the beginning, how that started was some of them wanted to return to Indian Territory. So so we're talking about a week before the Juneteenth celebration that's going to happen there. And I was hoping you could talk about that. Like, you know, I guess you you, you mentioned it started, I think, about 40 years ago. Yeah, about 40 years ago. I think um, from what I understand, it started around 1979, but it didn't really pick up until around 1984-ish. That's when... Um, I don't know. For some reason, I guess everybody, it took a little time to gain momentum. And for some reason, 1984 was a big year. I think they had um, like T-shirts made that year. And I know that there are buttons. Someone gave us a button that we have in our museum that I think is really cool. And every year we're like, we should get buttons. And then we think about it like two days before. Um, but I guess for 1984, for some reason, they said, let's do it big. Or it just, you know, it took a while to to um, gain momentum, but that was the big year. And I think ever since then, it's always been sort of like a consistent um, event. You know, we, we do sort of sort of show our pride in Brackettville. 
and you know all the citizens here um you know come out and sort of celebrate with us we've always had a parade because everybody loves a parade here then once we we go down main street then we end at the carver school which is the cultural center that you talked about in the beginning so we all park there and right after the parade we always have a program and then following the program which normally lasts about an hour or so um, there's also singing. We sing, you know, a lot of like Negro spirituals and things like that. That's something that Miss Charles was really big on. So, you know, a lot of what we do is really to honor her and her memory. And then following that, we have our barbecue plate sale, which is, you know, that's the, you know, the thing that brings everybody <laughs> to the school is food. And so that normally lasts, you know, most of the afternoon. People either come take their plates and go, or they'll come and sit outside. Even if it's hot, I always think it's interesting how people will sit outside. And then um, once everybody, you know, eats, you know, they rest for a little while. And then normally they would come back and we would have a dance, and that would be the end of the Juneteenth. We just have a dance, and but of course because of COVID these last two years, we've had to really pare it down. But last year was really special because literally to a person. We had a, a, a drive-through barbecue last year. So we were running the plates to the cars and every person was so happy because Juneteenth had just become a national holiday. It felt like everybody was in a moment and it was something to be happy about. So, um, you know, even though we didn't get to gather like we normally did last year, I would say last year's Juneteenth was just really special. And can you explain what Juneteenth is, I guess, to folks who don't, who don't know about it? Yeah, so, um, you know, originally the Emancipation Proclamation was signed by Abraham Lincoln in 1863, I believe January 1st, 1863. And that proclamation um, freed all enslaved peoples, which were mostly Africans. So it gave them their freedom right at that moment. Um, unfortunately, because it took the news time to travel, um, it took two years before Texans were even aware that they were were free. And um, it was on June 19th in Galveston, which is a port city here in Texas, when I believe it was Lieutenant Granger, I might be getting his name wrong, um, proclaimed that all Texas enslaved peoples were now free. And so on that day that everyone learned that they were free, they say that everyone gathered um, in parks and you know, had picnics and, and just celebrated themselves. I believe there was a group of people, um, I think in Austin, who actually purchased land at one point so that they could have land to go and celebrate their, um, you know, their freedom with. And so, you know, there were so many amazing spontaneous celebrations that happened. And again, over time, it took some time for that day to become known as and it has so many names now, you know, June 19th, Juneteenth, which is, you know, sort of a, a contraction of that. Um, Emancipation Day, Freedom Day. Um, I think here we call it mostly Juneteenth, you know. Um, in more recent times, it's been called, um, you know, Emancipation. I don't think we've ever really called it like Emancipation Day, although that's exactly what it is, and Freedom Day. But yeah, it's a day where we celebrate that um, Black people here in Texas learned that they had been freed after two years of the rest of the U.S. having been freed. 
And uh, it's lunchtime here in Tucson, and and barbecue sounds good. <laughs> Is there what do you all serve anything unique to Black Seminole culture at the barbecues? Are there like a typical dishes that you serve? You know, you know that's a great question. Um, no, I think what we serve here is probably pretty Texan Mex Tex Mex ingrained. You know, we do um, brisket, sausage, chicken is what we're serving this Saturday. Although um, I know in the '90s they used to sell goat. A lot of people like goat, but for some reason, goat meat is hard to come by. Um, but it's always something that we always like try to get because people say that the black Seminoles here make really good goat meat, but you know, between you and me, I'm not a fan of it. So, you know, you can say it's good. I'll believe you. Um, but yeah, I think goat meat would be, you know, a meat that's, you know, something that like traditionally a lot of the black Seminoles here eat, but we just, you know, I don't think many people grow goats anymore. You know, to be honest, I really don't have a reason why. But yeah, we just have a hard time getting it now. Do you eat it with tortillas or, or like an oh, taco? Or? Um, normally we just have bread. But yeah, you know, what we do after is if we have, especially the brisket, we have the brisket left over. We'll sell brisket tacos or, you know, because it's so easy to just stand there and eat it. So yeah, we'll, you know, if there's any left over, then that's like in the evening. But with the plate, it's normally just bread. You know, we just have bread and then um, rice, beans, and potato salad. And then like, you know, the condiments like onions, jalapenos, and stuff like that. Okay, now I'm really hungry. I'm just torturing myself. <laughs> um, so it's so cool how there is this community in Mexico as well. So really you're a binational community do you ever go down to Nacimiento? It's called Nacimiento. Nacimiento, right? yes. No, I, you know, shame to say I haven't been. Um, I am planning to go soon, though, because um, when I was growing up, we would always go to Ciudad Acuna, which is through um, through um, Del Rio. So, you know, Ciudad Acuna is Del Rio's sister city, you know, but strangely enough, Nacimiento is Brackettville's sister city, but you have to go through Eagle Pass to get there, which is like a three, four hour drive. Um, you know, but I think that's something that, um, you know, when I was growing up, we weren't as connected to the folks in Nacimiento. Um, and I should say my family personally, because there are plenty of people, especially the folks in Del Rio, who go there, who have a relationship there, who have family there. Yeah, so it just depends on your family and what the family history was, whether, you know, most of your family immigrated or if, you know, half stayed and half didn't. But thanks to... I would say the invention of the internet, but more specifically Facebook, we've been able to connect. And I think that, again, to bring Miss Charles back into it, that was another thing that she really wanted to see happen was to see a stronger connection between these two sister cities. So, um, you know, thanks to Facebook and Google Translate, we are able to have, you know, these relationships now. and. Um, Actually, our treasurer is, she was born in Nacimiento, but raised in San Antonio. So, you know, it depends on, on who is around. So thank goodness for her. She goes to Nacimiento, I mean, frequently her father lives there. And so um, she's able to tell us what's going on there, what the needs are. And she's sort of our ambassador and vice versa. So... Um, you know, the connection is, is um, 
is getting stronger thanks to these modern inventions, you know, that allow us to speak to each other. Yeah, that's that's neat. And and how many people live in Nacimiento? And it's in the state of Coila, right? Yes, in the yes. State of Coila. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I think there are approximately 250 people that live there. Um, I think it's something like 100 plus families. But again, it's always, you know, changing. You know, people move to the U.S. and move back. So, um, yeah, their numbers fluctuate as well. And then also the... Um, and I should also say probably like the same thing with here, um, you know, the number of, of people who are pure black Seminole has dwindled a lot because of intermarriage with Mexicans. So, you know, like the, um, the older generations are the ones that they really consider like, you know, and look to for their history because they are still sort of the darker skinned black, um, people that they, you know, tout as the actual black Seminoles there. So they, you know, there's one lady named Lucia who still remembers the songs that used to be sung. So they look to her, you know, to, to sort of speak about that and sing and things like that. And that's pretty fascinating, right? These are like old um, spiritual songs. They are. Yeah, you know. Are, yeah. Translated into Spanish, I guess, by the community down there. Oh, no, actually oh, still sung in English. Yeah, they're actually still in English. So that's what makes it fascinating is the songs can definitely be traced to, you know, the lower country, the Gullah Geechis. They were singing, you know, spirituals. So they took these songs from South Carolina into Florida, into Oklahoma, into Mexico. And even as uh, Spanish was becoming their mother tongue, there was still a group that was singing these songs in English and keeping them alive. And over time, the songs became more and more sacred. I don't know if it was because they were, you know, considered spirituals or because they were sung in English or maybe a combination of all of that, but they've become a very sacred music. So now they're really only sung for births and deaths and marriages. Um, there was, there is a recording. Um, there was a CD that was produced of the of the music. Um, but yeah, I don't think all of them would necessarily be considered um, spiritual. You know, and actually, we were talking about that. We actually did a Zoom with the folks from Nacimiento not long ago, which was really cool. And so we were talking about how there's one that is called This May Be My Last Time. And, you know, the lyrics are, uh, this may be my last time, this may be my last time, I don't know. I have a mother that's gone before me. This may be my last time, I don't know. I have a sister that's gone before me. This may be my last time, I don't know. I have a father that's gone before me. Maybe the last time I don't know, and the lyric that always gets me is, "I have a baby that's gone before me." This may be yeah. my last time I don't know, and so um, I think of that as more as a. I don't know if you would call it a, a Negro spiritual necessarily, but like a, it, it sounds so contemplative and and sort of pondering, and you know, what is this life, you know, a lament, yeah, a lament, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and then another one is called Happy New Year. And that's, you know, it's just, it's a happy, happy new year. And they sing that at the beginning of the year, so. All right, well, I wanna zoom to the present now. And uh, obviously, you know, Brackettville and Kinney County play a very big part in Operation Lone Star. 
which is this multi-billion dollar initiative that uh, the Texas governor started that, um, you know, sent, he sent National Guard and police to the border. And, you know, Kinney County has been become the sort of focal center for um, arrests, you know, where the police and National Guard arrest undocumented migrants who cross into Kinney County for criminal trespassing. And I'm just wondering, uh, as someone who lives there, you know, sort of what have you seen and what kind of impact do you think Operation Lone Star has had on on the community there? The, the impact that I think Operation Lone Star has had, I think, is a mixed bag. Um, you know, I think growing up in a border town, immigration is something that happens that you often just don't even really think about because it's so much of the norm to know that people are constantly going back and forth across the border. Um, You know, it might not necessarily be my family story, but so many people that I love and are close to their families, friends, you know, the border is um, sometimes an obstacle. Sometimes it's, you know, a short crossing. It just depends on sometimes who, what the administration is, you know, what the climate is. I was always raised not to ever fear anybody trying to come over here as as an immigrant because um, from a very young age, I I don't think I was I was necessarily taught, but I was shown that um, these are very low risk averse people. They are not coming here, guns a blazing, trying to harm anybody. Um, for the most part, the large majority are very good people who are just trying to find a better way of life. Um, I think what's happening now is that there is a lot of um, fear mongering that has to come with this in order to make this work. And I think that's what makes a lot of people uncomfortable is the amount of, um, you know, the heavy dose of, of scaring citizens that has to take place in order for this to work, in order to justify, you know, all the cops that are here. Um, but then on the other hand, you know, the difficult thing is that there are no easy answers. Um, on the other hand, I definitely see the increase in, um, in a need for public safety. You know, I witness cars speeding through town, you know, with people smuggling. So I think, you know, the the thing is, is that you want people to um, look at an issue and look at everything, you know, to be as nuanced as possible. And I don't think a lot of people are able to be nuanced, you know, not everybody has the time to sit down and read everything. But I think what's, what's happening is that two different aspects of immigration are being commingled into one. You know, there is this drug smuggling, human trafficking aspect that is a bad element. But then there are also people who are seeking asylum, who are coming from countries where if they continue to stay there, their life, their life expectancy would be awful and be cut short. And we can't lump everybody into that same bag and call them all bad. And I think that's what's an issue here is that it's very easy to paint everybody with the same brushstroke. When when the cars are speeding through town, are they being chased by border patrol or police or? Um, yes, I would say eventually. 
Um, it just depends. I think every chase is different, but um, eventually, yes, every car ends up getting chased because, you know, something speeding through town is going to catch attention. Um, so it's either they're speeding through town or a bailout happens. Are you familiar with the term bailout? So it's one of the two that happens either, you know, because Highway 90 runs through Brackettville. Um, you would think most people just stay on the highway, but for whatever reason, they decide to turn into Brackett onto the residential roads. And of course, as soon as they turn, they have no idea where they're going. So that makes it even more dangerous. And so they either keep driving, speeding until they hit something or make the decision to stop the car in the middle of the chase and then everybody just fan out. So it's either a, you know, a, a chase, I mean, a, a, an accident head on, or you're looking for 10, 12 people. So yeah, it's always just one of the two is how it ends. Well, I, um, I wish I was going to be there for Juneteenth. I know. <laughs> I, if I wasn't so far away here in Tucson, I would be there next, next weekend. Yeah, I'm, uh. Sorry to miss it, but um, I want to thank you so much for for coming on the Border Chronicle podcast and and for you know talking about your experience and and the Black Seminoles and and it's just been a really great conversation. Well, no, thank you. I was so happy to hear from you. So this has been a pleasure, and and again, thank you so much for thinking of me. Absolutely. Um, take care. Okay. Yes, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. So. All right. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. The Border Chronicle is reported by Todd Miller and Melissa Del Bosque, based in Tucson, Arizona. This interview is edited by me, Brenna Maytorenolara. If you like what you're hearing, please like us on your favorite podcast platform. It really helps others find the show. You can read and listen to more local border reporting on our website, theborderchronicle.com.